0: Please take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. In the ninth chapter of Acts, we're going to begin in the middle of verse 19 of Acts, chapter 9. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in whichever version you have with you today. Acts 9, 19. This is speaking of the Apostle Paul after his conversion. Now, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a large basket. History well-written, in my humble opinion, is the best reading one can do. Now, I know I'm biased. I remember one of my history professors at university, he said, history is biography, and I tend to agree with him. Maybe that's why I like history so much, because I love people so much. It's about people. I'm fascinated with people. I've read many biographies in my life dating back to my childhood. The first books I remember reading, checking out of the library in the elementary school which I attended were always biographies. But the best I've ever read is one about a man named Dawson Trotman. It's entitled The Navigator. And that book tells the amazing story of a man whom God used, according to Billy Graham, who presided over his funeral more than any other man in his generation. That's quite a commendation coming from the mouth of such a man as Billy Graham. More than any other man that he knew, this man Dawson Trotman was used to change the world because of the gospel that he preached and the disciples whom he made. He was the founder of the Navigators. The scene of his death was Scroon Lake, New York. He was yet a relatively young man in his early 50s. He had met there with the leadership of the Navigators from all over the world, not just The United States. And as was always the case with those kind of meetings, there was a lot of seriousness which took place. But even in his fifties, he was a boy at heart. He loved adventure and fun. So during a break between some of the teaching sessions, he gathered a group of college students with him. They got into a speedboat and they were traveling around that beautiful lake in upstate New York, Scroon Lake. He did not know until he sat down beside a young lady in the boat that she could not swim. So he took her by the hand and he told the person on the other side to lock our arms with her so as to relieve any fears that might arise as that speedboat made its trek around the perimeter of that beautiful lake. The driver of the boat came around sharply and in the process a wave which he had made in a previous round, smashed into the front of the boat and it jarred the people riding the boat and Trotman and this young lady fell into the lake. She drowned. No, not she, but Dawson himself drowned as he saved her life. The next issue of Time Magazine, after the drowning of Dawson Trotman, read simply this way. Dawson Trotman... Always holding somebody up. Now, there's two ways you could take that last phrase, right? Always holding somebody up. I thought about that. Uh, We can hold people up by serving as a roadblock to them, can't we? And many of us do that. We do that in our homes. We do that in our communities. We hold people up. We stop their progress. But that's not the way in which the writer of Time magazine intended that to be understood. He was always helping people up. He was lifting people up. This was his M.O. And it is to be the MO of any of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. In this passage which we read, we see the story of Paul's being held up. He's being held up by some unnamed people. And really there are several unnamed people, one a group, and I'm going to save them for a little later in the message. But there is another person who, in effect, without even knowing it, held this man up. This man, Saul, as he's called here, that was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. He was, in fact, a Roman citizen. You probably know that. So he had his Hebrew name and also his Greek name. Well, the man that I'm going to speak of first The unnamed man, unknown man, was the man who made the rope from which this basket was fashioned. This was not a wicker basket, as we might think, but it was a very sturdy basket made of ropes. Now, I'm going to invite you to join me in summoning my imagination. And I'm going to invite you to let your imagination take flight with mine. Let's... Let our imaginations take us back to Damascus, the scene of this event that we just read of. And as we go there, imagine that we find ourselves in the district of craftsmanship. And we're walking down a narrow street, and all of a sudden we come to a business, and above the entrance to this business is the name of that rope maker. So and so rope maker. We go in to that place of business, and when we arrive there, we don't see anyone in the outer area. But we know that there's someone there because we can hear work being done a little further into the recesses of this building. We work our way there, and we quietly look into the room where the work is being done. There's only one person there, a man we watch as he both rapidly and skillfully takes strands of fiber and weaves those strands into a rope. We watch carefully and for some time to see him complete one such rope. And then we see his strong hands and arms and shoulders take that piece of rope that he has made and pull it tightly as hard as he can to see if it is, in fact, a rope that will work. And... Fulfill its intended purpose. What I'm sharing with you this morning is about this rope maker. And the whole idea of the rope maker is suggested by a tiny devotional, a paragraph long, and it's entitled, Somebody Made the Rope. Somebody had to make the rope out of which this basket was formed in which Paul was dropped over the wall of Damascus and escaped with his life in the cover of night. Well, what would have happened if that rope had broken? Well, we don't know for sure, but if we were in that same visit to Damascus, go to the traditional place where Paul supposedly had been let down over the wall from a high window, we'd see... It's quite high. And if it had fallen, he might have been killed or maybe paralyzed. He might have survived the fall and there would have been police, as it were, who would be looking for his attempted escape. That's what we know from this passage, but also in his own account of it, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33, there's a little bit more information that's given to us. We really don't know, but we know there was a lot riding on that rope basket. Would you agree? Some of you are familiar with Longfellow's poem where there is a line, Fate about Paul Revere. Fate was riding, the fate of a nation rather, was riding that night. Well, there was more than a fate of a nation riding on the rope basket. The fate of the... Fledgling Christian faith, in a sense, was riding on that rope maker's work. Now, what is this all about? Why am I talking about this rope maker? Well, I hope it's clear to you why I'm talking about the rope maker. He was critically important. And what we need to understand is, in this day and time, just as surely in the day of the Apostle Paul, God has equipped you and me to do something in our world to bring attention to the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord wants us to do the kind of work we do in the places where we do our work in such a way that our witness for Jesus Christ will not in any way cause people to be held up. But it will be a means whereby they will be lifted up and be willing to hear... What we have to say when we share the gospel with other people. A good friend of mine had a driveway which, after about 15 years, had begun to crumble. The concrete work was inferior. It had begun to crumble. He called a friend of his, who was himself a concrete contractor, to come to the house and take a look and see what he would advise. The man came He took a look. Of course, the advice was, you've got to get it fixed. But don't hire the same people who did it in the first place because they used inferior materials and there was an inferior work ethic. And then as an afterthought, as this man was leaving to go his way, he turned to my friend and he said, let me ask you to do an experiment. I'd like to ask you, the next time you go downtown, not to take the loop to get there, but take a route that will take you through the city. And notice the concrete work between where you live and downtown. And he did exactly that. And he said as he made his way closer and closer to town, he came to the downtown area, and there was no indication of any kind of cracking or breaking of concrete, the reason being that 30 years or 40 years before then, when that concrete work was being done, it was being done With quality. Now, we who know Jesus, we have a ministry. All of us do, without exception. If you know Christ, you may say, What do you mean? I don't mean the ministry that we have in the church. We have a ministry in the church. We've been given spiritual gifts. Those gifts have been given to us to bring glory and honor to God for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. You need to know what your spiritual gift is. I need to know what mine is. And I need to cultivate that gift. There's a a proper place and time for that for sure. But most of you spend most of your time in the world. Am I right about that? You have been sent as undercover agents by the Lord Jesus Christ into your world to represent Him there to be salt and light. And for your testimony to be effective, for your ability to be used to raise people up instead of holding them back, what's going to have to happen? You're going to have a consistency about your life, your character, but you're going to have a consistency about the work which you do. My understanding of the New Testament would yield this piece of information. That God wants you to do your work as if you were doing it for Jesus Christ Himself. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And then in addition to that, God wants you to work hard. He wants you to be all in in your profession. Because Jesus says in the parable of the talents... Do you remember that parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew 25? What does he say? He says to the one servant who only got one talent, and he was so hacked off that he just got one talent. What he did, he just buried it. He didn't do anything. And then when the Lord would speak to him through this parable, this is what would be said, depart from me, you wicked, and catch this, lazy servant. I would think it would be fair to say that laziness is wickedness. It has no part to play in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're working for Him. That would change the whole atmosphere of many of your work situations. If you would recognize it's Jesus whom you serve and that God's going to open doors for effective ministry through the way in which you do what you do, it would change your environment, your work environment. On the east coast of our country several years ago, there was a factory which made docking harnesses. And that's a word that I was not familiar with until I was introduced to this idea. And a docking harness. Docking harness is these huge ropes. You've seen them when ships will come from sea and there'll be these huge posts on the waterfront and these are like ropes that are used to tether the ships to the dock. Those are important, wouldn't you think? And there was a factory in this city, in that district actually, where these docking harnesses was made. And over the entrance to this factory were these words. The worker in this factory weaves his conscience into his work, hyphen, because lives are at stake. Do you understand that where you work, that there are people who don't know Christ, whose life eternal is at stake, And a lot of it may have to do with the way in which you do what you do. Where you and I work is the place God has placed us in order to be used by Him to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was listening to an interview yesterday. I cannot tell you the exact program. I think it was focused on the family. I was listening to KELP and there were apparently two doctors who were being interviewed. I got in late on the interview, but I heard one say about Everett Koop, C. Everett Coop. Do you know the name C. Everett Coop? He was a Surgeon General during the administration of President Reagan, if I'm not mistaken. He was a great physician. And he was, more importantly, a dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ. He did not come to Christ until he was out of medical school. He was practicing medicine. He was an excellent doctor. And he would go to the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia where he practiced medicine. He became a teaching physician also. And he would go there and he would listen to Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse teach on the book of Romans. He would sit as far away as he could in the upper reaches of the balcony. He would slip in, late. Before long, after he began to listen to the Word of God, he would come in early because he did not want to miss anything of the teaching of the Word. He was saved and he was radically changed. And this is what he would tell people who claimed to be Christians who were doctors. This is what he would say. You cannot let your Christianity be an excuse for slipshod practice of medicine because it's important if you're going to properly represent Christ that you do the best work you're capable of doing because of whom you represent. So please understand, this rope maker, he was a good rope maker, wasn't he? Now, we don't know whether he was a Christian, but he was a man who took his work seriously. I would hope he was a follower of the Lord. Maybe we'll see him someday in heaven and be able to clarify that. But we understand That God has called us to be men and women, whatever our station in life may be, who do this kind of work. It'll change your atmosphere and your attitude as well. Well, let's get to the people who are a little more clearly delineated for us in this passage. The rope holders themselves. And I'd like to ask you to look again at our passage of Scripture. At verse 25. His disciples took him by night. These are people whom the Apostle Paul had already introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a new believer himself. What that tells us is you don't have to be too far ahead of those whom you're discipling, probably about one or two steps ahead. And there's nothing that will enhance your spiritual growth like taking the charge that Christ has given to you to make disciples. Now, let me pause. I don't want to assume anything this morning. What is a disciple? Well, the word disciple itself is derived from another word, a verb in the Greek language, which means to learn. So a disciple is a learner, a lifelong learner, and it's more than just learning book stuff. It's about learning propositional truth, but it's about observing someone as the apprentice of another person, watching what that person does. Paul later in his writings gets at the heart of this when he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So a disciple of Christ should be a disciple maker, a lifelong learner, follower of Christ. The word disciple appears over 250 times in the New Testament. The word Christian only occurs three times. We should think of ourselves as disciples. Christ calls us to discipleship. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the beginning point. This was the word that was used to describe Peter's denial of Christ. I never knew the man, he said. I don't know who you're talking about. So that's the way we're to relate to who we are in our own flesh. That we never knew Mike Woods before he came to Jesus Christ. He is dead. That's what the Bible says. And Christ lives in him and in you. And Christ wants to reproduce His life through me. The thing which roadblocks that is my own selfishness. As we sang, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." My heart just broke when I thought about that line which says, "'To cease from trusting self.'" And I thought about how often do I now, 45 years into serious following of Christ, still trust Mike Woods instead of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Therein is failure. The flip side of that failure is success. When I do not trust in myself, I deny myself and take up my cross. What does that mean? Well, we know the cross is an instrument of death. But what we also know is the cross is an instrument of redemption. Jesus redeemed the world through what He did when He died on the cross and became sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. And when Jesus says, take up your cross daily, what He's getting at is, I should look at my walk with Christ as His disciple as the opportunity to do something that will contribute to the redeeming work of the Spirit in the world. And that all comes back beginning with what? Self-denial and then following Jesus is the way He finishes it. Follow me. That's the only present tense command in the bunch. Keep on following me. This is to be the way in which I live and the way in which you live. We're to follow Jesus. These were disciples. Unnamed disciples. That's important. It really doesn't matter whether anybody ever knows your name or my name related to what we do in the kingdom of God. In fact, the more obscure you and I are, the more likely God is going to use us because our egos will not get in the way of what Christ is doing and will not in any way block the glory that is reserved for Jesus Christ alone in our lives. I cannot give credit where credit is due with the quote I'm about to give to you. It was some great personage of God in the modern era giving a prayer at a great gathering of Christian leaders. And as this man prayed, he said this. He says, "Lord." We do not care who gets the credit as long as you get the glory. That's the way we're to live. That's what it means to be a disciple. These people will never know their names in this life. They were simple disciples, unsung, and they worked to help Paul get down over that high wall so he could escape and continue his ministry of making disciples, planting churches. He had yet to plant a church. He had yet to write any of his epistles which make up our Bible. What would have happened? These disciples were faithful men. Perhaps even a woman or two held the rope. We think of Rahab. We read about her in the book of Joshua, the second chapter. She was a rope holder, wasn't she? She must have been pretty strong to let two guys down over the wall in Jericho, but she was a prostitute. She would not get much glory in the church today, would she? She might feel so out of place because we're so stuffy as followers of Christ sometimes, and I'm not advocating prostitution, so don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not. But she was used by the Lord, wasn't she? She was an ordinary woman. She was below ordinary, really. Below ordinary, but God used her. There's more to her story. If you look in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, what you will discover is she was the great, great grandmother of King David. Wow. The Lord uses people, doesn't he? That we would not think he would be likely to use. He uses us if we make ourselves available. Let me speak to the parents who are present today. Do you know, parent, that you are to be a spiritual rope holder for your child? Every one of your children, even the ones who've sorely disappointed you, you're to be a rope holder for that child. You're to pray for her, pray for him, hold them up. God will bless them as you do that. As a pastor, I'm to be a spiritual rope holder for you, the part who of this body of Christ present today as elders. We're to be spiritual rope holders as deacons. Deacons are to be spiritual rope holders as ministers and directors of ministries. You're to be a spiritual rope holder. You're to be a spiritual rope holder as a Sunday school teacher of children or youth or adults or a WANA worker or whatever you do in an informal way. You're to be a spiritual rope holder. Are you a spiritual rope holder? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you being this kind of person who is always lifting people up instead of letting people down and putting people down? Good question. Well, when did this event occur? It occurred at night. It's when it occurred. We live in a time in our nation's history and the world's history, Western civilization, is under siege. It's a tough time. It's night. But think about this. We're to let our light shine as disciples of Christ in such a way that people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And that's such a way. That's important in this way that I've spoken of already. Denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and imitating Jesus, following Christ. And the result will be we'll bring light into darkness we're to be light in this world. And I, will, I, I think about our students. We are so blessed in this church. There are not many of them in this room, but there are some in this room who would be considered, according to the pundits, millennials. And there are a lot of pot shots which are taken at millennials, that they're just kind of drifting and aimless. And there are a lot of them are, unfortunately, a large portion. Not so much true in our church, for sure, but a large, large portion. But what we need to understand this, listen carefully. And if you are a millennial, pay careful attention. I know there's some over here who are millennials, maybe some over here. Listen carefully. You have a tremendous opportunity if you're a millennial. Why? Because I'm no expert on this topic, but I'm just a casual observer. And as I casually observe what's happening in that particular age group, what I know is the pool of leadership is shrinking The reservoir is evaporating. There's only going to be a handful of people who have the character and the will to lead. And if you know Jesus Christ and you're following the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciple, if Drew is making disciples in his ministry, if he's leading his people, and I can tell you for sure that's his heart. We are grateful for a man like Drew that God has led, and his wife Veto, and all those who help. We are grateful for these people. They are disciples themselves and they are making disciples of the Lord. You know what can happen? These fine young people that are being discipled in this church and some of them don't have parents who know the Lord. And some of them come out of rather rough backgrounds. But you know what Jesus Christ does? He transforms people. They're new creations. And as Drew and his team disciple these people, I would not be the least bit surprised to see many come out of this ministry who are going to be the leaders, not just in El Paso, but possibly even in the world. I have great hope because of this. It is nighttime in world history and in our own American history. But we will shine bright. And you young people, you will certainly shine bright, more bright than your peers. Not that we're any kind of competition for who the brightest person is, but you will be a person who understands you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you live accordingly. God will be glorified in you and through you. How long did they hold the rope? Well, thank God they held it till the, the basket got to the ground, right? Yeah. They held the rope until the work was done. I think about Jesus Are you glad he held the rope for you until his work was done? Do you remember his next to the last words? What were they? It is finished. Thank Jesus that he finished what he started. We could look at the man Nehemiah. If you've never read the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, I strongly encourage you to do that. Tremendous story of a man who held the rope. And he had a lot of other people helping him hold the rope. An interesting statement occurs in the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. The Bible says that the people worked with a whole heart until the wall was built to half its height. Let me tell you when it's hardest to continue whatever the Lord's given you to do. It's hardest when you're in the middle of something, when you're halfway done. It's the most discouraging time. In your life, in the midpoint of a marriage, in the midpoint of a semester of school, in the midpoint of some project at work, and there's this ever present tendency to give up and quit. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't quit, and He lives in us, and He will give us the power not to give up and to go forward. Thank Jesus for living in us. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our Lord never gives up. He never quits. And we won't either if we're filled with Him. Who was in the basket? Duh. Paul. But did those people know what Paul would become? They had no idea, did they? They had no clue. There may be somebody's rope that you're holding that will become another Paul for the 21st century. What an opportunity we have. We never know, do we? But the Lord knows, and he gives all of us assignments to hold ropes for family members, for church brothers and sisters in Christ. And you old men here, and don't act like you're not old, if you are. You men in your 60s and up. You know, David said, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds, even when I'm old and gray. Do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. You know why God has given you a white head? Because He wants to use all that wisdom He's built into your heart. To invest in the next generation of young people. To share with them, love them, care for them the way in which someone cared for you. Now, I'm going to quickly give some examples of rope holders. The first name I'm going to mention is probably unfamiliar with most, if not all, people present. His name, Austin Gallagher. He lived in the backwoods of Kentucky. And on a hot summer day, he and some of his friends, he was 11 years old and some of his friends around his age were swimming in a swimming hole. And one of the boys, 8-year-old boy, I might add, found himself drowning because of cramps. And Austin Gallagher had the presence of mind and the courage to swim to where his friend was drowning and he was able to pull him to safety. You know who that person was? Abraham Lincoln. Austin Gallagher. Who is that? He held a rope for one of our greatest Americans, Abraham Lincoln. There was an elderly Scottish preacher in the 19th century. And he had labored long and hard for the Lord in the parish where he was pastor. His head deacon came to him one Sunday after the service, and he said, Sir, there is something radically wrong with your ministry. And that hurt, of course. And what he said next hurt even more. This past year, only one person was saved through your ministry, and he was a boy. As if to say, the salvation of of a boy is inferior to the salvation of an adult. I remember what D.L. Moody said to a woman who came forward and was criticizing his preaching. She said, there were only there was only two and a half people saved today. And he said, What do you mean? He said, Well there were two adults and one child who was saved. The boy was saved today. He said, Hey, I think there was only one real full person here. It's a child. He's got the rest of his life, you know, So we need not look down on this. Well, this man was heartbroken. He was cut to the quick because he wanted to see people come to Christ every bit as much as this deacon did. And he was feeling very dejected. The room was empty. And all of a sudden, that boy, whose name was Robert, who had come to Christ in the previous year, came up and approached his pastor. And he said, Pastor, do you think it would be possible that if I studied hard enough that I might become a pastor like you? Of course, this encouraged the old man. And he turned and said, yes, Robert, you can if you trust the Lord. The rest of the story is Robert Moffat was his last name, this Scottish man, became a missionary to Africa. And he was used to see many of the tribal people in his area hear the gospel, come to faith in Jesus, and he would come back periodically to his native Scotland to report on what God was doing and to encourage others to come and join in the work. He was speaking to a group one evening among whom was a man named David. And as he told the story of his work there, he said, I have risen many a morning on the plains of Africa where I live. And the sun was bright The sky was clear, and in the far distance I could see the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever come with the gospel. This man named David, David Livingston was his name. And he came to Brother Moffat, and he said, Sir, do you think the Lord could use me in Africa? And that's the story of the rope holding for David Livingston. In nearby England, several years before the story I just told, there was another old preacher, and he had been dismissed from his church. And it was his last day serving the church. It was a Saturday. And he went out into the cemetery, which was adjacent to the church building, where he had faithfully ministered the Word of God for years. And when he went out there, he found himself brokenhearted. He began to weep. He got behind a tombstone ...to hide as he wept. There were no other people around as far as he knew. But he was crying out to God, weeping, sobbing... ...about the fact that he was no longer going to be able to teach the Word of God to the people of God. And all of a sudden he heard the voices of children. And he peeked around the tombstone. He saw a group of boys who were coming into the graveyard and they were playing. And so he composed himself. He took his handkerchief, wiped the tears away blew his nose, and he stood up behind the tombstone. It was like his pulpit. And he spoke to the boys, and they came to him. And he didn't scold them, but he began to share the gospel with them. And one of those boys prayed to receive Christ that day. He was eight years old. His name, William Carey, who is known by missiologists within Christian studies as being the father of modern missions, this man, unnamed, held the rope for William Carey, whom God used to take the gospel to India. In 1865, a Sunday school teacher screwed up his courage and decided he would go to the boy, really he was a teenager, late teen, in the church that the Lord had put on his heart to share the gospel directly with him instead of in a general way to a group of boys. So he made his way to where this man worked. This man was a shoe salesman. His goal was to become a millionaire by selling shoes. He was rather ambitious, right, to be a millionaire in 1865 through selling shoes. He found the young man. He drew him aside. He began to stumble and fumble through the sharing of the gospel. He made a mess of the way he shared it. And this young man already had had the witness of the Spirit in his life. And he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord. His name, Dwight L. Moody, the man who individually counseled, and that means witnessed individually to conservatively 100,000 people in his life, preached to millions before the days of amplification, the greatest evangelist of the gospel of Christ in the 19th century. Well, let me go ahead and wrap up with one more story. This story is about a man named Boris Kornfeld. Boris was a descendant of Abraham. He was not a practicing Jew, but he was a man who had high integrity. He was a medical doctor in Russia during the time of the Cold War. He was a man who was against, increasingly against, the Soviet system, and it landed him in the gulag. He was a prisoner. He had privileges there that the other prisoners did not have because he was a doctor. He doctored not only the inmates but also those who worked there in that prison. He had a man who was in the prison with him who was a a Gentile, a non-Jewish man, who was incredibly kind to him. And Kornfeld would never have given this man the time of day had this man not have been an educated man. You don't have to be an educated man to introduce a doctor to Christ. But nevertheless, this man was kind and well-educated. And he began to witness to Dr. Kornfeld about the person of Jesus. He told him that Jesus was the Messiah and that the hope of Israel was wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And he listened carefully to this man's witness. And it was not too long before he came to Christ. He continued to protest even more vehemently, actually, than the inhumanity and brutality of the Soviet system to prisoners like those in the prison where he worked and where he was mistreated to a degree. Well, there was an inmate who became his patient. This inmate was diagnosed with cancer. He had had surgery. Dr. Kornfeld had done the surgery. He had removed a malignant tumor. From the man's abdominal region. And the man was lying in recovery. He had a fever. He was somewhat delirious. But Cornfell came to see him. And he began to minister the gospel to this man. And for five hours he shared the message. And he interacted with this man. who became, interestingly, very alert at the sharing of the gospel. And that man later came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Not that night, but the seeds had been planted and they would germinate and they would produce fruit. Well, Dr. Kornfeld left the room of this man recovering from this radical surgery and he never saw the light of day again. He was attacked by God only knows who in the prison and he was bludgeoned to death with a plaster hammer. He was killed that night, probably at the behest of the people who ran the prison commanded by their superiors to kill him because he was becoming more and more a distraction because of his anti-Soviet viewpoint. That man who came to Christ through the witness of this man, his name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Many of you know his name. Who held the rope? Well, there was somebody who held the rope whose name we'll never know. And then Boris Kornfeld, he's not in too many history books, I don't think. Solzhenitsyn is. But he held the rope for Solzhenitsyn. A man named Robert Newell was traveling and he had car trouble. And this was long ago. In the 1940s, he was traveling and his car broke down in a rural area and someone came along. A man came along, stopped, said, what's the problem? He told him the problem. They tried to get the car started. It wouldn't start. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've got a rope here. I'm going to tie your bumper to my bumper and I'm going to take you into the nearest garage. It was 30 miles away and no super highways, I might add. In fact, the road was gravel that they were traveling on. So he was helped by this man, Mr. Newell was, was helped by this man. When he got to the place where the car could be repaired, he turned to his helper and said, Sir, may I pay you for helping me? He said, No, you may not. Would you please at least allow me to fill your car with gasoline? He said, No, you may not. Every effort that Robert Newell made to try to say thank you to this man in a positive way, was rebuffed. And he said, can I do anything for you, sir? And this is what he said, yes, you can. Buy a rope and put it in your trunk. (laughs) That's what the Lord would say to you and me. We're to be rope holders. Are you holding somebody's rope? It's not due to the lack of possibilities. They're around us all the time. People who need their ropes to be held. We are disciples of Jesus if we know Him. We are following Him. He wants us to make disciples. And we need to get the mentality that it doesn't matter if anybody ever knows your name or my name. It's immaterial. We are here as people who have the name of Christ in our lives. We are children of God whom he has enlisted to advance his kingdom. The Lord wants you and me to be a rope holder and a good rope maker if the opportunity arises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this idea that is conveyed to us in this passage. We thank you for those who held Paul's ropes as he was let down. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, Lord, for the way he was unashamed of you. And he was intent upon getting the message of the gospel out over the world. Thank you that he was a disciple maker par excellence. And we thank you, Lord, that there's that possibility in our lives. Give a vision to everyone here of how she or he could really be used to make disciples by holding the ropes for other people. Make our church a church that is about helping people up, not blocking people from becoming whom you created them to become. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.